0: To my little Welcome, one and all, to episode 34 of Say Hello to My Little Friend to the New Zealand podcast on theology, philosophy, social issues, and the occasional home baking recipe. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. Well, you're in for a treat today because. I'm going to be talking about sex. Mostly about other things, mind you, but at least partly about sex. Today's episode is on original sin. You might know of the original sin. It's not something you hear a lot about in churches today, at least not in your average evangelical church, in my experience. Now, it's not that they don't believe it or they're denying it, but they're not teaching it. And as a result of them not teaching it, when some Christians first learn about the idea of original sin, they don't recognize it. They don't recognize it as a biblical teaching. They don't recognize it even as a Christian teaching. Now, what's more, in a time where more vocal critics of Christianity, most noticeably the so-called new atheists, have called into question, usually by way of ridicule, shallow ridicule at that, the idea of original sin, for a lot of people, maybe even some Christians, that's their first exposure to the doctrine. And, and that's just not an ideal context for giving the doctrine a fair hearing. So, what I'm going to try to do in a fairly short space of time today is to explain the doctrine of original sin in its various major forms, tell you basically which view I hold, and defend the doctrine against a couple of possible objections. So, I'm kind of taking you to Sunday school with that plan of attack clearly ahead of us, let us proceed. Evangelical theologian Millard Erickson sets up this inquiry, this discussion of original sin, nicely with the following line of questioning. He says, and I quote, All of us, apparently without exception, are sinners. By this we mean not merely that all of us sin, but that we all have a depraved or corrupted nature which so inclines us towards sin that it is virtually inevitable. How can this be? What is the basis of this amazing fact? Must not some common factor be at work in all of us? It is as if some antecedent or prior factor in life leads to universal sinning and universal depravity. But what is this common factor that is often referred to as original sin? Whence is it derived? And how is it transmitted or communicated? I like that word. Whence and how, indeed. <laughs> now, there are a few statements in the Hebrew scripture, what we call the Old Testament, that hint at the issue is addressed by the doctrine of original sin, but there are certainly no developed theories there. The obvious place to start is in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, I'm sure you know the story well. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, until Eve was tempted by the serpent, and then Adam and Eve both ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then came God's judgment. God spoke to the serpent, then to the woman, and lastly to the man, saying, in Genesis chapter 3, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. start a family outside the garden, separated from the tree of life. As a theologian, John Calvin, put it, man was now excluded from the tree of life, barred from the garden so that he would have to seek for life elsewhere, ultimately in Christ. Now, whatever else the account in Genesis tells us, it at least tells us that what is depicted here affects not just Adam and Eve, but all humanity after them. In the most straightforward sense, that effect is mortality and death. But there's something deeper as well, alienation from God, a sent away from God's presence in the garden. All of this passes to the human race as a whole, because they must now start a family outside of the garden. What's more, in the Old Testament, there's little doubt about the universality of sin. The biblical writers say with no sense of doubt at all that there is no one there is nobody who does not sin. First Kings chapter eight verse forty-six, and also Second Chronicles chapter six. They don't have to do a survey or go and check. Wait a minute, maybe there is someone who doesn't sin, or who 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 does live righteously. It's taken as though it's an indubitable truth. How could they be so sure? The psalmist shared this certainty in Psalm one hundred and forty-three verse two. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Well, how do you know that? Did he check? Maybe th- there were some people who grew up righteous, never sinning on the other side of the world. Not that they necessarily knew about the other side of the world, but you know what I mean. The Old Testament writers presuppose that this cannot be the case, even though they never give any detailed explanation of why this has to be so. There are also a couple of references in the Psalms to people being sinners from birth. Um, Psalm 58 verse 3 is a good example the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray from birth speaking lies and it's not just the wicked uh, to whom the concept of being tainted from birth even from conception applies in fact the psalmist says it about himself in Psalm 51 verse 5 a well-known verse which says behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me so the idea of sin being universal and touching everyone from the very beginning of his or her existence is clearly present in the Old Testament, but a developed doctrine of original sin, namely an explanation of how and why this is the case is not in the Old Testament. It's not until we get to the New Testament that we get a look into an attempt to explain the relationship between the sin of Adam and the state of humanity in general. And in going there, I want to look at the way that various theological traditions have understood the idea, and then, and in doing so I'll bring what the New Testament has to say on the issue to bear on what those traditions make of it. So we're going to look at some historic views of original sin. I'll start by looking at the Minority Report, the view that basically denies original sin, the view that was historically rejected by the Christian faith, a view that gets called Pelagianism because of its association with Pelagius. Now, Pelagius, in case you don't know, was a monk, a British monk, in fact, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. He was declared a heretic for his views, although, in fairness to him, his beliefs did not violate the most basic of doctrinal standards to come from the first few centuries, things like the Apostles' Creed, which took a long time to develop, or the Nicene Creed. But his position eventually became the historical loser and the position that the church rejected. So what was Pelagius' view on the connection between the sin of Adam and my own sinfulness, or his own sinfulness? In a word, imitation. I think you can sum up the Pelagian view of original sin with that one word, imitation. We are sinful for no other reason than that we imitate the rebellion of Adam, and, I guess, of each other as well. Explaining what Pelagius taught in detail is difficult because we don't have a large amount of his writings. Most of his really contentious thought is known because of the way that his opponents, especially Augustine of Hippo, responded to him. Now, it, it goes without saying, so I won't say it. No, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that this fact raises the very, very real risk that the received view of Pelagius' the- theology isn't accurate. That's a It's a real risk because the ones who represent him are the ones who don't share his view and the ones who reject him as a heretic. But there's little point in wondering what reality might be like beyond what is indicated by the evidence that we do have. Besides, Pelagius was branded a heretic for these views. If he didn't really hold them, then he, it's most likely that he would have clearly said so in order to be avoid you know, you know, being ostracized by the church. He could simply have said, well, hang on a minute, that's not what I think. But he didn't do that he accepted the condemnation, well he didn't accept the condemnation, but he accepted the way that the church described his position. Augustine's most direct description of Pelagius's views are perhaps found in his work called A Treatise on the Merits and Forgiveness of Sins and on the Baptism of Infants. There he writes to a man named Marcellinus. Ma- Marcellinus, I Don't even know how that's pronounced. I probably should. He wrote to him concerning a letter that had been sent to Augustine, alerting him of what it was that Pelagius and his followers were teaching. This is what he says. He says, You tell me in your letter that they endeavor to twist into some new sense the passage of the apostle, in which he says, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. Yet you have not informed me what they supposed to be the meaning of these words. But so far as I have discovered from others, they think that the death which is here mentioned is not the death of the body, which they will not allow Adam to have deserved by his sin, but that of the soul, which takes place in actual sin, and that this actual sin has not been transmitted from the first man to other persons by natural descent, but by imitation. Hence, likewise, they refuse to believe that infants that in infants, original sin is remitted through baptism for they contend that no such original sin exists at all in people by their birth. The idea that, end of quote by the way, the idea that sin affected only the one who committed it, Adam, and that it did nothing to the human race as a whole, is what got Pelagius into trouble. Augustine goes on to offer some discussion of Romans chapter 5 in explaining his own view, and I'll come to that very soon when discussing the next view. But right at this point, he makes one specific observation about the brief snippet of Romans 5 that he quotes here, by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. He says, and I think he's on to something, that if Paul had really meant that the first sin entered the world through one man because it gave us all A sin to imitate, but it did nothing more than that, then a problem arises because according to the Bible, sin existed before Adam. Adam was not the first sinner. Augustine doesn't use this verse, but he could have. Jesus refers to the devil in John chapter 8 and says that he was a liar from the beginning. Now, if Paul is talking about the origin of sin in the world in the sense of the example that all humanity later followed, then he'd be pointing the finger not at Adam, who was imitating Eve, who was imitating the serpent. He'd be pointing his finger instead at the devil. That's Augustine's point there. Next, Augustine makes an analogy for the sake of those who think that we are only sinners because we imitate Adam. That analogy is the way that Christ makes us righteous. He says, yes, okay, so we do in fact imitate Adam. But that doesn't show that there's no such thing as original sin. I'm paraphrasing him, but this is his basic point. After all, Augustine points out, Paul says, and I quote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But that doesn't show that God treats us as his own just because of our good deeds and imitating Christ, does it? He quotes 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, which says, So then, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. End quote. After all, says Augustine, and I quote again from him, by this grace he engrafts into his body even baptized infants who certainly have not yet been become able to imitate anyone. End quote. Now, I'm not going to pause to argue with Augustine over his theology of baptism and what it does. But his point is that imitation isn't what gets a person right standing before God. Instead, it's the sovereign grace of God counting people as part of the body of Christ apart from the good works that they've done. It's the work of God that results in us being righteous in God's eyes. Even though we might be imitators of Christ, in fact, we should be imitators of Christ, that's not what makes us righteous. So the fact that we do imitate Adam in his sin doesn't prove that this is the reason that we are sinners. He then moves on to make a further argument, he quotes Romans 5.12, or at least a version of it, quoting it by saying, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so passed upon all men, in which all have sinned. Now the phrase in which comes third hand from the original Greek via Latin. The Greek phrase is epiho, meaning something like on whom or on which. Paul is talking about events that had taken place prior to the giving of the law, And the idea in this sentence is that Adam sinned and brought death into the world and death spread to all because on account of this, or perhaps on account of this person, Adam, all have sinned. And Paul could say that this was the case when Adam sinned and before the events of, for example, the book of Exodus had occurred. Augustine reads this and then says that if he were to make this theological declaration, then the Pelagians would object They would object because they would be able to see and be willing to admit the implications of the words of Augustine, their theological foe, but they refuse to object to those very same words when the apostle Paul uses them because they want to claim that he is on their side. They couldn't possibly say, we disagree with Paul, but were I to say them, said Augustine, they would surely disagree with them. Shortly after saying these things, Augustine moved into the territory of explaining his own view. So I'm going to move away from discussing Pelagianism and into discussing uh, Augustine's view, which, you know, if if we're into summing things up with one word, the Pelagian view can be summed up with the word imitation. Augustine's view, and I think it's fair to call it the Catholic view, although some Catholic theologians also suggest the next view that I will come to, can be summed up with another word, transmission. Augustine says in the same work that I've been quoting from that original sin is something contracted by natural birth. This sounds like a disease. It is something that is, quote, from natural descent, end quote. His position was that we are all sinners because of Adam, because we are all descended from Adam, literally as a family tree. And through this line of descent, we have all been tainted with original sin. It's like inheriting ginger hair from your grandmother, but worse. This specific understanding of original sin is the main reason that Catholic theology maintains that Mary was immaculately conceived. That is, she was miraculously conceived without original sin. This is so that when Jesus was born, so Catholic theology says, original sin did not pass from Mary to Jesus. Now, I have to say that even if this understanding of original sin is correct, I haven't discussed that yet, this doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary is is just unnecessary. If it's possible for someone to be miraculously conceived without original sin, even though their parents are sinners, then why not just have Jesus conceived without original sin? Why bring Mary into it at all? I'm not going to pursue the theology of Mary any further than this, maybe another time, but that's just something I thought I'd throw in there. How then is original sin passed on, according to Augustine? How does it get from one generation to the next? One guess. told you I'd be talking about sex. In his dispute with Julian of Eclanum, himself a Pelagian, Augustine, speaking on the parts that Adam and Eve covered up with fig leaves, the you-know-what, he said, and I quote, that's the place, that's the place from which the first sin is passed on, end quote. Quite literally, that's the organ from which original sin is passed on to the next generation. And that, said Augustine, is why Jesus did not arrive in the world through natural conception. And as soon as the theory of original sin starts saying that sex is a way of passing on sin, I get suspicious. It only gets worse, unfortunately, when in the same sermon in which Augustine said this, he went on to argue that a man's sexual arousal is a punishment due to original sin, a punishment That rightly afflicts the very part that is responsible for transmitting the sin. I'm a glutton for punishment. (laughs) I can't can't conceive of that, a punishment. You know all those rumors floating around about the church's negative view of sex? They didn't come from nowhere, unfortunately. In fact, Augustine, and I'm going from memory now, but in the same sermon, makes a, a sort of subtle innuendo to his parishioners without saying it directly. He basically says, you know that while you're sleeping sin via that organ does to you what it doesn't do during the night you know don't you feel bad for having wet dreams? I, I, it's crass I know but that's that's actually what he said to his congregation that the, that sexual arousal is a punishment for sin for for the original sin of Adam. yeah so what is it that is transmitted to us according to the Augustinian view? well contrary to Pelagius, death is transmitted to us because of sin, for one thing. The Pelagians deny this. Were it not for sin, according to Augustine, we would not be mortal. We wouldn't die. There's also the idea of a corrupted nature here. We're mortal because of sin, and our will as well is affected by original sin. We are sinners. We're not just mortal, but we are sinners because of our inherited tendency to sin. the Catholic idea that baptism washes away original sin has some pretty important implications here. Article 1263 1263 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, and I quote, "By baptism all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. In those who have been reborn, that is baptized in this context, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. Now, if we take this literally and consistently, then the consequences of sin are entirely removed by baptism, according to Catholic theology, meaning that any sin committed after baptism is committed purely out of the freedom of the will, and not in any way because of our sinful nature. After all, it says here that all the consequences of sin are taken away in baptism. If you die after baptism without freely choosing to sin, Catholicism tells you, then you get to avoid purgatory, and you go straight to heaven because you're like Adam prior to the fall, but you're still mortal. But if you sin after baptism, then you need the sacrament of reconciliation, that is, confession to a priest, to make you clean again, otherwise you'll have to do time in purgatory. Or if you commit mortal sin, sorry, it's hell for you, I'm getting off track. But more than our will, being fallen and inclined to do bad things, the guilt of sin itself is transmitted to us prior to baptism, that is. Remember, I'm basically describing a a Catholic view at this point. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 19 is relevant here telling us that, and I quote, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, end quote. We didn't just suffer for Adam's sake, we actually became sinful because of that original sin. The Catholic encyclopedia tells us, and I quote, since Adam transmits death to his children by way of generation when he begets them mortal, it is by generation also that he transmits to them sin. For the apostle presents these two effects as produced at the same time and by the same causality. So it's the actual sin of Adam itself that is transmitted to us. The cause of the sin, sorry, the cause is the sin of Adam. And it comes to us by generation, or in other words, procreation, natural reproduction. But how exactly can a moral status be transmitted via descent? I mean, how can sin actually be a sexually transmitted disease? It's not a genetic trait, surely. We don't arrest and punish people who are the descendants of criminals precisely because we recognize that moral guilt or innocence just doesn't work that way. I think that this is where the idea that original sin is simply a matter of transmission goes wrong. And it leads me to the third view of original sin, the view that I think is the most plausible. And since we're, as I said, in the business of summing a position with one word, the appropriate word to use for what I think is fairly fairly called a reformed view is neither imitation nor transmission but representation. That's the third word. Another word that fits equally well might be imputation. Now I don't want to be unfair to the Catholic tradition. The idea of representation is present in some Catholic theologians as well, especially Thomas Aquinas incidentally, but when they do advocate that view, I think they basically render the view that original sin is transmitted by descent to be quite redundant because I think, that representation, I think that once you adopt the representation view of original sin, the transmission view just isn't required anymore. The idea of representation or imputation finds its most logical placement within Reformed theology, partly because it is in fact what the Reformers taught, makes sense, And also because it is so similar to other parts of Reformed theology, especially when it comes to justification, that it's just a natural fit within Reformed theology. Just as with the Reformed view of justification, the idea of original sin as a matter of representation is like a legal treatment of the issue, as a kind of transaction like the atoning death of Christ Adam acted as the legal head or the legal representative of the human race. He acted on behalf of all his descendants. Calvin, John Calvin, distance... No, the other Calvin. John Calvin distances himself from a strict transmission view of original sin, even though he occasionally does use the word transmission, well, in his own language, by saying, and I quote, thus, from a corrupt root, Branches proceeding transmit their corruption to the saplings which spring from them. The children being vitiated in their parent conveyed the taint to the grandchildren. In other words, corruption commencing in Adam is by perpetual descent, see he still uses the word descent, conveyed from those proceeding to those coming after them. The cause of the contagion is neither in the substance of the flesh nor the soul, but, here it is, God was pleased to ordain, that those gifts which he had bestowed on the first man, that man should lose as well for his descendants as for himself. That's from the Institutes by Calvin. So the idea is that the sin that comes to us from Adam is not contained in the soul or the body. Calvin was a dualist after all, so it wasn't something passed on in our body or in our soul, but it comes to us by the divine decree or the divine ordinance that Adam's act affects us all. The way that this works is explained in what is often called federal theology. There's a lot of reading that could be done on federal theology, and I'm not going to go too deeply into that. What's relevant here is that Adam, in the federal theology, is seen as a representative head of humanity, and Christ is seen as a representative head of redeemed humanity. As far as Adam's connection to the rest of us, as far as sin goes, is concerned... Louis Burkhov, was it Lewis? I'll say Lewis. Louis, Louis Burkov's succinct statement is representative. He says, and I quote, The guilt of Adam's sin committed by him as the federal head of the human race is imputed to all of his descendants. end quote. He adds, and I quote, federal theology stressed the fact that there is an immediate imputation of Adam's guilt to those whom he represented as the head of the covenant. End quote. Now, there's actually more than one view in the Reformed tradition. There's a second view that was sometimes held alongside the representative view. John Flavel was a well-known Puritan clergyman of the 17th century who wrote a catechism, and in it, he addresses the question, how can we be guilty of Adam's first sin? That's the question in his own words. His answer is, and I quote, because Adam sinned not only as a single but also as a public person and representative of all mankind, end quote. So that's that's federal headship. That's the representative view that I've been discussing as a reformed view. But then he adds another question. How else came we under his guilt? So he seems to think there must be another reason. No, I don't think any other reason is actually required. But according to Flavel, there was another reason. Here's the answer given in that catechism to the second question. He says, and I quote, We are guilty of his sin by generation for we were in his loins as treason stains the blood of the posterity or parents leprosy their children, end quote. We were in his loins? Faleville is actually arguing that we were present when Adam sinned. We were there and we were participating physically, it seems, in that sin. Not because he represented us, although he thought that too, But, says Flavel, because we were physically present in seed form in Adam's, well, his loins, as he politely puts it. This is actually a claim about biology. It's a claim with biological implications anyway, and it's wrong. We now know that no part of us at all was present in our great ancestors' bodies. We know that this is just not how reproduction or genetics works. And this way of thinking was common. Thomas Watson similarly said, and I quote, all of us sinned in Adam because we were part of Adam, end quote. No, well, actually we weren't. We weren't part of Adam. Genetically, it makes sense to say that Adam is in us, in a way, because his genes are passed on, but not the other way around. That's that's not how it works. Setting aside the thought that we were present in seed form in Adam's loins, as, as a wrong way to think about biological family trees, there is another possibility here, which is discussed in both Catholic and protestant theology and history and it has to do with two different views on the origin of the human soul within dualistic portraits of humanity where there is a body and then an material soul one can uh, one one can ask where the soul of a newly conceived person comes from and also when it enters the body according to what has become known as creationism not to be confused with the view on the origin of species. Each time a new individual body is conceived, God creates a brand new immaterial soul and attaches or infuses it into the body. Human persons aren't actually conceived in this view. Only bodies are conceived. And also, human persons are not descended from human beings, which is a bit odd although creationists might not often pause to think of it that way. Exactly when the soul becomes attached to a body isn't a cut-and-dried matter either. You might say conception. Some have said that it happens at quickening. That's the point where a mother can feel the baby moving. Or you might pick some other point. The alternative to the creationist view is called the tradition view, or traditionism which says that you get your immaterial soul, just like your genes, from your parents. Now, if you're a creationist, then you might find the idea of human beings having sinful souls to be a bit of a problem. After all, if the soul of each new person is created directly by God after conception, then the idea that the human soul is sinful would mean that God actually creates a sinful soul. And you might think much of that idea. If you're a traditionist, however, you think that you get your soul from your parents and they got it from theirs and so on, right back to the first human parents. So maybe if you think of it in terms of traditionism, forget the idea that we were present in Adam's loins, that's just not true. But if you are a traditionist, or a tradition or whatever the noun is, then maybe you can in fact think that part of us was present in Adam when he first sinned. Now, of course, you're going to have a pretty serious difficulty explaining how a piece of immaterial soul, a non-physical thing, could be broken off and then passed on to Adam's first child We can understand cells dividing, but how do you understand a non-physical soul dividing? I mean, the idea of a soul is that it's simple, and it can't be divided. But I'm not a dualist, and if you are one, that's your problem to solve. It's not mine. However, if you accept federal theology and its idea of representation and the imputation of guilt and righteousness, then that whole business of souls doesn't even need to be an issue. Federal theology is no more than the idea that all humanity is represented by Adam. In his sin. And those who are saved through Christ, the, the new humanity, that is, the elect, call them what you want, are represented by Christ in his obedience. The idea of having others act on our behalf is not strange in the way that having a moral status passed on by procreation is strange. That's strange, but representation isn't strange. Still, you might find it unfair. Normally, when others act on our behalf, they only do so with our consent. Elected government officials are the obvious example. We elect them into office, we tell them that they have the right to act on our behalf, and then they can act on our behalf. I have a few comments to make about that objection. Firstly, it's an obvious case of projecting our Western democratic values back into a foreign context. If God decided to treat the first humans as representatives of all who would follow, what procedural or technical objections are you going to raise? Was there some constitution of the universe to which God was bound? No. But if that's not good enough, if that won't settle the objection, then try to see, try to be creative and see if you can imagine a context in which democratic values are the norm, and yet still someone acts on your behalf without your consent. Imagine a country like New Zealand where people live for centuries. They live to be really old. And a hundred years ago, a rather young man was elected to power. Now, the term of office is just happens to be 150 years. And you were born a hundred years after he came to power. Okay. He's responsible for a law that now governs you. And yet he, he certainly didn't have your consent when he wrote it. Or if that still won't do, if that's not good enough, then let me give you the example of Christ. Did Christ establish the new covenant in his blood with your consent? Did he stand in your place and atone for your actual sins, the ones that you yourself committed, with your consent? Are you going to object to being made new in God's sight because this was all carried out without your consent? You see, if you object to Adam's guilt being imputed to you without your express consent, then I want to hear you object just as strongly to the righteousness of God being credited to you credited to you through christ there comes a point at which the only real issue is whether or not something is true not whether or not you like it now you might not think christianity is true maybe you're just listening to this out of interest in which case fine reject reject the theory of original sin you already reject everything else about christianity so one more thing isn't going to be an issue but as i said there comes a point for christians at which the only real issue in theology is whether or not something is true, not whether or not you like it. I think that, in the end, objecting to the fact of original sin is about as fruitful as a physicist objecting objecting to the reality of gravity, because he doesn't like falling down. It, he kind of just has to deal with it. The reality is, I'm not wild about the idea of original sin. I don't like it. I wish that it were not true, And if it were up to me to come up with a system of theology that would be true just because I said so, then I probably wouldn't include it. But it's not up to me. In Reformed theology, baptism doesn't... Moving on now, by the way. In Reformed theology, baptism doesn't wash away sins, either original sin or your own personal sins. You don't get a clean slate at baptism and then get it dirty again with sins needing to be washed away repeatedly at confession or in purgatory. In Reformed theology, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, God treats you as absolutely righteous in the absence of any good works at all. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He bore all of our sin on himself. Baptism doesn't change your heart. I'm saying this as someone with, with a bit of a Baptist bent, but baptism is evidence of a changed heart. Now, obviously, I wouldn't say that if I believed in infant baptism. But you're still a sinner. Baptism doesn't change your nature. That's an ongoing process. But objectively in God's eyes, or as some have said, positionally or forensically, God sees you in Christ, perfect and without blame. Back in 2007, Christopher Hitchens, well-known atheist, debated Alistair McGrath, a well-known Christian theologian, on the so-called poison that is religion, one of the things that he tried to lampoon, as though it were obviously wrong and absurd, is the idea of someone acting on our behalf to absolve us, namely Christ. He thought that was just crazy, immoral. However, in the process, he actually undercut his objection entirely because he revealed that, in fact, he accepts the basic principle at work, as I think many people do. He says that he might, if he loved somebody, pay their debts, which, by the way, is something you can do without their consent. He could, if he could find a way, serve somebody's prison sentence for them. He could, as in the tale of the two cities, tale of two cities, I should know that, take somebody's place on the scaffold. This is all according to him, not according to his opponent. He volunteered all of these examples. So there's actually a basic recognition that many of us, Christian or otherwise, share that we are able to act morally on behalf of another. But this podcast episode wasn't supposed to be about justification, so I won't go any further down that road. Instead, I want to talk just briefly about a modern challenge to what I've been saying. There is a challenge here, at least a challenge for some of us. One thing that the traditional models of original sin have in common is a literal understanding of the Genesis narrative, or at least a literal reading of the account of Adam and Eve. The idea that someone in particular did something that has implications for us. In fact, in Romans 5, where Paul argues that just as through one man, Adam, sin and death entered the world, and also through one man, the resurrection of the dead became a reality, that one man, of course, is Jesus Christ, it looks like his argument only works if there was a literal Adam who committed a literal sin in history that affected us all. I think this is a challenge because fewer and fewer Christians believe that a strictly literal reading of the early Genesis narrative is the right one. There are plenty of sincere and not particularly liberal, I dare say, Christians who embrace evolution. And then you have Christians like me, who at very least are not inclined to read the Garden of Eden story as factual history. Don't pretend to be shocked by that, as if you didn't already think I was a heretic. Now, certainly it's possible to read that account as a more generalized theological portrait of our alienation from God. I want to use the word myth because it's strictly correct, but that can give you the wrong impression because some people hear that word and think it means a load of garbage or a story that's just false. So I won't use it, even though I've already used it. But Can we give a coherent account of the fall and original sin if we give up a very literal understanding of the Garden of Eden narrative and and Adam and Eve? Can we do that? Can we make that doctrine general enough so that it can fit a view of Genesis like the one I've just alluded to, while still being capable of being elaborated in the way that Paul does in Romans chapter 5? Now, I certainly don't pretend to have done so. And for my part, I think that this is the next area of the doctrine that will need to be explored and developed a bit. This is to say nothing of how difficult it is for those Christians who are evolutionists and don't even believe that there was a couple that can be thought of as our first parents. The doctrine of the fall is, as many Christian evolutionists themselves realize, the serious worry that really lies behind the conservative Christian uneasiness about evolution. As I've said... I don't have anything like a full answer to these kinds of worries, so I won't attempt to give you one. It's possible that there are some written works on the subject that do make a decent job of offering an explanation. Feel free to come along to the blog and suggest those. Uh, I freely admit that it's an area of considerable ignorance for me, but I couldn't, in good conscience, just leave the subject there as though there's no challenge to original sin at all. There is, and it's one that I'm sure in principle can be addressed. As Richard Dawkins and others say about science and about evolution in particular, the appearance of a problem isn't a reason to throw the theory away. It just means that if we don't yet have an answer, we're working on it. Now, there's plenty of reading to do on the doctrine of, of sin and of original sin, and if you want to look further into it, there's no shortage of material. All that I've tried to do here is to explain what the doctrine of original sin is In its various major forms, because it occurs to me that it's not something I've heard taught in church. And I'm fairly sure that I'm not alone. If you're listening to this and you are someone with pastoral and preaching responsibilities in your local church, when is the last time that you taught about this? Have you taught about this? Is it possible that your congregation hasn't been taught about it? Maybe. Maybe it's time. It's worth thinking about doing if you haven't done it for a while anyway, because it's it's an important part of Christian theology, the origin of human sinfulness. My introduction to the issue is over. And although not the most riveting subject in the world, I really do think it's an important one for Christians to at least know about. So hopefully I have contributed to that end today. You know, I can't actually remember the last time I did one of these, so here goes this week in history. Here it is, the week 4th to the 10th of April. April 4th in the year 742, Charlemagne, the founder of the Frankish Empire, was born, which might not be all that interesting by itself, apart from the fact that also on April 4th in the year 814, he died. April 4th, 1453, the siege of Constantinople begins. The Muslim forces under Sultan Mehmed II attacked Constantinople, culminating in a sacking that resulted in the end of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, for some reason, when the Christians did this in Jerusalem, everyone remembers the Crusades, but the Muslims don't always get reminded of the sacking of Constantinople. April 4th, 1507. Martin Luther is ordained a priest in Erfurt, Germany. Yeah, some people are regretting that now. April 4th, 1968. Civil rights leader and Baptist minister Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. April 5th, in the year 2348 BC. Yes, you heard that right. According to tradition, but I'm not really sure whose tradition, Noah's Ark grounded on Mount Ararat on this date. April 5th, 1943, Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer is arrested in Berlin because of his involvement in a plot to assassinate Hitler. April 5th, nineteen fifty. Nine Catholic clergy are convicted of trying to overthrow the government in Czechoslovakia. See, that's, that's cool. What happened to you, clergy? You used to be cool. April 6th, in the year 6 BC, according to some scholars, this was the actual date of the birth of Christ. Fancy that. Christ was born before Christ. April 6th, 1868, Mormon leader Brigham Young married his 27th and final wife and then died promptly of Exhaustion. Actually, that second part might not actually be true, or is it? April 7th, AD 30. According to some scholars, some scholars again. Who are these some scholars? This is the date on which Jesus was crucified just outside Jerusalem. April the 8th, 1099 AD. Long criticized by doubters that he had truly found the Holy Lance. That's the spear that was used to pierce the side of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Also called the Spear of Destiny. Peter Bartholomew agrees to the suggestion of priest Arnul Malacorne, or something like that, that he undergo a trial by fire in order to improve the relic's authenticity. To prove the relic's authenticity, he dies of his injuries on April 20th. But because he does not die immediately, Malacorne (laughs) declares the trial a success and the lance genuine. So it was not all in vain. April 9th, 1909 on Azusa Street in Los Angeles under the leadership of William Seymour, the phenomenon of speaking in tongues and the doctrine of the baptism and the Holy Spirit were introduced to evangelicalism, a key point in the development of the Pentecostal movement. April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is executed by hanging in Flossenburg prison. Try though you might, you are unlikely to ever be as badass as that guy. April the 10th, 1829, English evangelist William Booth, founder and first general of the Salvation Army, is born in Nottingham. Nottingham? A man from Nottingham who takes from the rich and gives to the poor. I never thought of that. In 1865, Booth and his wife Catherine set out to reach the desperate poor and unchurched by conducting open-air meetings with his lively music, preaching in theatres, bars, and jails, and creating large-scale plans to relieve poverty. And that'll do for now. For those who don't know, because you are heretics, you are anathema, and you do not follow my blog, shame on you, I'm delighted to tell you that I've been accepted to speak at a conference at Merton College at the University of Oxford in late August 2010 this year. I say 2010 this year, it might seem obvious to you, but you might be listening to this in 2011. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's the Conference of the European Society for the Philosophy of Religion, and the subject is religion in the public square, which is a subject of special interest to me. It was the subject of my uh, PhD dissertation. If you'd like to help me get there, please drop me a line at info at beretta-online.com or contact me via the the contact form at the website. That's also my PayPal email address. I'd be greatly appreciative if you want to be a part of making this happen. Now I'm not sure what the next podcast will be about but I have some ideas if there's anything you'd really like me to cover then feel free to make a suggestion but that's all the time we have for now well actually I have all the time not all the time in the world but I could go on all night but I won't. So until next time this is Glenn Peebles saying stay tuned for another episode of Say hello to my neighbor Oh, um before I go actually, sorry, one thing. I lied about the home baking recipe. That was just to get you interested. Sorry.